page 10. And the guys have some notes. Ken has some here if you need a set. Larry has some back there. All right, I have a couple of announcements before we get going. One is, parents of teens, there is a meeting after this class, 1215, in the impact zone. That's the teen area in the back. And it's about the missions trip for this summer. So Larry Castle, our youth director, is going to give some details about the summer missions trip that the teens are planning to Mexico. So if you're a parent of a teen and you want those details, then 1215 uh, in the impact zone. Also, uh, next month is our next offering of our periodic newcomers orientation and new members class. The uh, newcomers orientation and newcomers class will start on May the 26th, Sunday the 26th, and they are both four weeks long. The newcomers orientation is for those who are new to our church, new to find as you've never taken the newcomers orientation. So you may have been here for two years, and when it's been offered, you haven't been able to take it, or in the past perhaps you weren't interested, but you are now. But if you've never taken it, we'd encourage you to do so. It's a four-week class that I lead that tells you about our church and what our history is, where we came from, a bit about what we believe, what our philosophy is, and what we hope to achieve in the future. And it's strictly for information for you to help you decide, is this where the Lord would have me to serve? And after it's done, we don't hassle you. Uh, we, don't, uh, we leave it to you to, to pray about it and, uh, and follow up with any uh, other questions you might have. And then if you decide, yes, this is where the Lord would have me, then you let me know and we go from there. But it is informational and it's uh, important information, so we encourage you to avail yourself of it. Newcomer's Orientation begins May the 26th. Simultaneous with that, for those four weeks, is our new members class. And that's for people that have joined since the last time we offered the orientation in the class. So those of you who fit in that category, Pastor Matt will be leading that for four weeks, and it helps you get acclimated to our church, uh, find ways to get involved, uh, that kind of thing. So it's an important course for those who have recently joined our church. And then for the rest of you, we will have uh, some of our, uh, some of our uh, uh, brothers, uh, some of our men teaching in uh, this class uh, for those four weeks, and then I'll be back and we'll start a new series after that, okay? So just mark that, May the 26th for Newcomers Orientation and New Members class. This course is Stolen Identity, Who Does God Say I Really Am? And we are in the third lesson that is on page 10. And in the prior two weeks, we have looked at the fact that self-esteem, and in particular high self-esteem, is something that our culture teaches is mandatory, is absolutely necessary in order for people to function as well as, as they ought. We saw in lesson number one that that's based on a secular notion from guys like Adler and Abraham Maslow. We even have the pyramid of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs listed for you in lesson number number one. And then last week we tried to look at what the Bible has to say in refuting this idea that you must have high self-esteem in order for you to be able to function as you ought. But there were people who still, nonetheless, persist in high self-esteem, even in church, even in our church. There are people who really think very highly of themselves. One of those is Pastor Matt. Now, Pastor Matt's not in here. 
He's teaching the young adult crossroads class right now. But this guy has a serious self-esteem issue. Now, let me tell you how I know this. As you know, we've been in this building for a little bit over two months, and there are all kinds of transitions that have to occur, one of which is we had to uh, set up our Internet system in this building. So Matt has spent a lot of time and done good work in setting up a wireless system for us. So if you're out in cafe community area there, uh, if you want to use that as an Internet cafe, you can. We've got wireless that extends out there, and that's because Matt's done that work. Well, in the part of doing that work, then, there are passwords and that kind of stuff that, that have to change. And in my work with Matt over these last five years, as he's been our associate pastor, he knows the password that I use. I have a particular password, like most of you, that I use for pretty much everything. He knows what it is. So he sets up access for me to the server and you know, puts in a password. And I go to get on the thing for the first time, and I can't get on it. My, my password that I normally use for everything, and he knows what it is, doesn't work. So after I curse the day he was born, <laughs> in a Christian sort of way, you know what I mean, I call him, and I say, what's the password? And he says, oh, I forgot to give that to you. Here's the password. Lost without Matt Owen. (laughs) The whole string, lost without Matt Owen. So I am pounding the keys as I have to put it on. Are you kidding me? So I immediately, I put that in, I get access, I change the, the full password to what it should be. But it gets better because we have a, a family email address that requires, like all email addresses, a password to get to the server. And we have one that we use uh, at home for that, for church purposes. And Kim is trying to get on after Matt has set all this up. And uh, she says, you know, it's not working. How do I get on? So I go and I put in the password that it should have been thinking maybe he just did that to me. I put it in. It doesn't work. So then I put in lost without that. (laughs) And that doesn't work either. So I curse the day he was born again and then call him and he goes, oh, the password is Matt is awesome. So, I am going to find a way to give him a password. (laughs) Matt is a weasel, is what I want to. So the self-esteem thing affects people of all shapes and sizes, and all all sorts and all places, including in church. But it's a a huge issue. And over the next four weeks now, uh, we are going to look at the ways it affects people and then try to show how we can help people who have been harmed so that they have an accurate view of themselves. Because we can come off, if we're not careful, I can come off, in teaching what the Bible says about us and our propensity to sin and how we are viewed by God when we're estranged from Him outside of Christ. I understand that that can come off very harsh. And, of course, Christianity teaches grace and mercy and love, and we want to accurately represent that. And so please stay with us until, until the end. But today on page 10, Lesson 3... We want to look at one of the primary ways that folks are affected by 
their view of themselves, and that is in what's called the performance trap. Next week, we're going to look at the approval trap, but this week, the performance trap. Top of page 10, in lessons one and two of this series, we saw that the ultimate sin according to our culture is not a failure to honor and thank God, but the failure to esteem oneself highly enough. The cry of deliverance is no longer the Bible's, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Instead, we hear people crying, O worthy man that I am, who will reaffirm my value? Now, what are some things upon which people base their self-worth? Well, we can group them into a couple of broad categories. The first one is what we'll look at today, performance. I must meet certain conditions to feel good about myself. And if I perform up to a certain level, then I must be okay. That's what we want to deal with today. Next week, we'll look at the approval trap, which says I must be approved by certain people to feel good about myself. If others recognize my value, then I will, I'll feel good. Now, both of these are, as we say, they're inadequate. But thankfully, they find their solution in the gospel and the revolutionary changes that take place when we come to God through Christ. But how many people who all have bought into the deception? Middle of page 10, almost everyone. Christians and non-Christians alike believes that success will bring happiness and fulfillment. We say almost everyone, Christians and non-Christians. Just last Monday, uh, Pastor Matt, uh, Brother Zach, Hamilton, and I were able to uh, attend an all-day seminar in Ypsilanti where the keynote speaker was Kent Hughes, author Kent Hughes. Some of you may know Kent Hughes as the author of a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. That's primarily how I knew him. For 27 years, he was the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, at Wheaton College. And uh, I have a number of his commentaries because he is the uh, principal author of a commentary series on the whole New Testament called Preach the Word. Uh, so he's a well, well-known author and uh, an excellent preacher and a good guy. But what I didn't know was that the very first book he ever wrote was in the 70s, and the title was Rescuing Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And this seminar that he was doing last Monday and that we had the privilege to hear in person was about that. It was about uh, rescuing ministry from a false notion, an, an unbiblical notion of success. And he told his story at that seminar about what prompted him to write that book. As a, as a young man, he was uh, saved at the age of 14, 13 or 14. And his testimony is this. He, gave, he says, the day after I was saved, uh, came to Christ, I was convinced God wanted me to preach. And he says, that has never wavered. He goes, I know that's weird. I know that's, I don't necessarily recommend that. <laughs> you know, when you're 13, deciding this is it, and that's why, but that's how God worked in my life. And immediately, uh, as, a, as a teenage new convert, I began to learn the Bible. I began to teach the Bible and preach the Bible. And uh, he said, I preached my first sermon at age 16. And he was developing his skills. And um, his denomination in his uh, early 20s decided that he should plant a church. He and his wife and some others should plant a church. And they funded him to do that in Southern California. And he tells the story of how they had all the ingredients for this to be a successful church plant. And he talks about what those ingredients were, their location, he talks about his wife as being one of those primary uh, important and good ingredients as he extolled all her virtues. And she's a, uh, an author in her own right. She wrote Disciplines of a Godly Woman, Barbara Hughes, and she's uh, well worth reading. And we had the location, we had Barbara, 
But then at the end of it, he says, but most of all, we had me. And this was, this was pretty much can't miss. And he's just being honest about the way he viewed himself and about the way that folks had stroked him in order for him to view himself that way. But he goes on to describe a, a few years in the ministry, it's just not happening. People are not coming. In fact, we're dwindling. And why is this happening? And he becomes absolutely despondent. And he was in, in the throes of despair. In fact, he tells a story of one night just unloading on Barbara and just telling her all of how horrible he feels and how he's a failure and why has God abandoned me and all of that. And then he says, and then I went to bed and left her to deal with all that. <laughs> and uh, before he went to bed, she said this to him. Well, you don't have faith, but I've got enough for both of us. So hang on to me. That's what she says. And then she stayed up that night praying. And she said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I need to be able to help my husband. And I need you to help me to help my husband. And he says, just like my call to the ministry, I don't recommend this. This has never happened to us since. And a lot of times when people say it happened to them, I don't believe it, but it happened to us. She, uh, she just opens the Bible. And her eyes go to Psalm number 37, I think it's verse 6, that says, though he fall, uh, he will rise again. It will not be fatal that he will recover. And she takes that as a sign from God, that God's going to work in and through this situation. And Kent Hughes goes on to continue to tell a story about how God used his wife, how God used friends, how God used, of course, Scripture and prayer to gradually have the fog lift out of that. But in, in the aftermath of that, he asks himself, they ask themselves some important questions. Why had we set ourselves up for this kind of despair and despondency? And it was because we had a false view of success. And so he wrote this book in the 70s, Rescuing Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And he gives some excellent principles. The chief of those principles is this. That in summarizing everything, we need to look at success in everything we do, whether ministry, whether raising our children, whether at work, no matter what it is, everything we do should be seen through this one principle. Faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. Success is not to be measured by results. We live in a results-oriented culture. Just win is the bottom line. You know, there's that old saying, it's not if you win or lose, it's how you play the game, and we kind of scoff at that. No, it is if you win or lose, and if you don't win, you're going to get fired. But from God's standpoint, no, it is how you play the game. And whether you've played the game faithfully and according to His rules. So faithfulness is success, whatever the results Listen, a parent is successful if he or she has been faithful. Quite apart from the results. We can't control the results. We parents want to. We think we can. We can't. But the question is, have I been faithful? In ministry, you're successful if you've been faithful. Quite apart from how many people like it how large it gets, all of that kind of stuff. If you don't get that early on, then you will tend to pull your punches. You will not be able to preach and teach what we preach and teach here if you're in the success syndrome. 
And you can plug in, dear friends, any endeavor you can think of. The principle applies. Faithfulness is success. And you see it in Scripture. That God commends those who are faithful, not necessarily those who achieved what we would see as favorable results, doesn't he? If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding his his readers that when they came to Christ, they adopted a completely radically new value system that affected the way they looked at what they pursue in life and how valuable that which can be taken from them is. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. (laughs) Now, these would be considered losers in our day, but they're considered winners from God's standpoint. But then that is uh, in the run-up to Hebrews 11, which, of course, is faith's hall of fame. And you look at all of the people who are, are listed here. And if you come down to verse 32, after mentioning a bunch of people by name, then the writer says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak, and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others, though, now notice, so you got all that, man, okay, that's success. We're winning. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, sawed into, put to death by the sword, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So God commends that group of people, and that group of people would absolutely be considered losers in our day. And not only in our cultural day, in our Christian cultural day, where it is big and better and success, and we are caught in the throes of the success syndrome. And so Kent Hughes, middle page 10, becomes despondent. And he becomes despondent because He expected and he felt like he deserved something better. And if you were with us last week, I said our reactions show what we think we deserve. When things don't go the way we think they ought, our reaction will demonstrate that if we become despondent, if we become angry. And what do we think that we deserve? Well, 
If you're in the performance syndrome, your mentality will be something like the five bullets. On page 10, I'm cool because of my athletic ability. Or people like me because I'm smart. I'm popular because I wear the latest fashions. Others notice me because I'm so funny. People appreciate me because I've got certain skills. And so you, you expect and you may even get the adulation of people, the adoration of people because of certain tendencies, skills that you have. And then what if those are taken away? If you've built your view of yourself on those things and your ability to do those things or have those things or display those things, and then you're not able to do them, then what happens to that person? That person becomes despondent. I want you to notice something in common with all five of the things that are listed there. And, of course, that list could be much longer. Athletic ability, smarts, fashions, humor, particular skills. Every one of those things can be taken away. They can all change very quickly. And so, friends, you should get a hint now that your image of yourself, your view of yourself, your worth, must not be based upon things that can change. We're going to see from a biblical standpoint that our worth is based on something that absolutely cannot change. But we say in that next paragraph, problems arise when performing up to a certain standard becomes part of our identity. That is, we think well of ourselves because others appreciate us for what we can do. It's called the performance trap. Those who fall into the performance trap also may become addicted to approval. We'll look at that next week because they crave recognition from others. This tendency to base our self-image on performance shows up in different forms in each of us. and It often brings harmful or negative effects along with it. So here are some of those. We've got five things listed at the bottom of page 10 and then on to page 11. And I want to... I want you to categorize these five things. The first and the fifth one, the first one's perfectionism on page 11. We've also got pride. And those are both, those are both actions or attitudes. So the first and the fifth one are actions or attitudes. So things we do or attitudes that we have. But then the three in the middle... They are reactions, top of page 11. So you've got things we do or things we think, actions and attitudes, perfectionism and pride. But then in the middle, you've got examples of reactions that we have when our expectations are are not met. So bottom of page 10, the first one, this, this action, this thing we do, in order for us to try to have the self-image that we desire, perfectionism. And what you want to ask yourself, and what I want to try to help us see, is what's behind this desire for perfectionism. It's actually in the attitude that is the fifth bullet, pride. But if you, if you don't see that, you will do what I've heard many people do in the past. I, they say, these labels, I'm a perfectionist. I'm a stickler for detail, and, and it's just this neutral thing. But I want you to see that it may well be, and often is, much more sinister than just this neutral thing. This is just the way I am. I'm a perfectionist. In fact, I may be looking for my worth in that. And then in looking for my worth in that, I try to hold people accountable 
to this artificial standard that I have set up that has to be, in my mind, perfect as well. Now, if somebody is like that, you just think for a moment, what are some things that would go with uh, a mentality like that? Well, you'd be nervous a lot, wouldn't you? It's like, it's got to be right. It's got to be perfect, right? So if you fit in that category, I'm just trying to clue you in. It's got to be right. It's got to be perfect. How about critical? Very critical of other people. I mean, you never measure up yourself to your standard, let alone somebody else measuring up, because we all know I'm smarter than those those guys. And so I find myself criticizing because I find myself worth in what I'm able to do, how I'm able to perform. And it manifests itself in this perfectionism. So if you find that, that agitation, that nervousness, you'll, you'll, it's, it's, a, it's a result of this false standard that you've set up for yourself and others, this criticism that you find that you have when you're in group settings and nobody can do it right. You finally just throw up your hands and say, I don't like to get involved in those things because I get too frustrated. I'm not asking for testimonies, just some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay? I mean, on the one hand, you want to be the fastest right hand in the West. You know what I mean by that? When, when somebody, when they ask for volunteers... You're the fastest right hand in the West. Because you know your abilities, you know you can perform, you take pride in that performing, but then because of that very thing, you get involved in the volunteer activity and you find yourself frustrated by it. Because I'm living in a world of fools and nobody can do it right and all the stuff. So perfectionism, down at the bottom. The belief that perfection is the only acceptable outcome. One may have no tolerance for others who fail to meet such high standards. Such people tend to have unreasonably high expectations for themselves and for others. And when a perfectionist fails, his life begins unraveling. So that is an action, perfection, born of an attitude, pride, that we'll see in a minute. But then here are some of the results that go with that. Despondency, low motivation. Failing to meet the standards when they've been unduly emphasized can lead to despair and giving up. You know, it's just never, never going to happen. It always turns out a mess. I don't want to get, as I said, involved with a group because people don't uh, do what they should. I don't do it as well as I should. And so, low motivation. I back out. I finally become frustrated with that. I become despondent. Or avoiding risks. Rather than try something and risk failure, one decides to play it safe, attempting only those things we know will succeed. After all, one cannot fail if he doesn't try in the first place. You know, now you, we, we will couch, of course, all of these things in spiritual language. You know, the, the low motivation, not doing, using the gifts and abilities that God has given me to the greatest extent possible and, and for the purpose for which he gave them. But, you know, I can say you know, I'm dependent on the Lord. I can couch it that way. Or in this avoiding risks, I'm, I'm dependent on the Lord. The Lord will work it out. So I become passive, but the reason I become passive actually has lurking behind it this pride in my perfectionism, which has caused me to become despondent, have this low motivation, avoid risks, but I can couch all of that in spiritual terms. And then anger, resentment, blame shifting. 
When one's efforts do not result in success, he may become frustrated and angry because he cannot reach his goal, or he may blame others for his own, for his own failure. When you see those things happening, dear friend, and as I describe those, if any of those or all of those describes you, this perfectionism that you had couched in just neutral terms, that's just the way I am, I just like to make sure things are done the right way, all of that, it's more than that. What's lurking behind that and what is motivating you is something more sinister than that if it gives rise to these kinds of things. So these should be warning signs to you that you are finding your identity in your performance rather than in Christ. And what is lurking behind it ultimately? The fifth bullet, pride. The performance trap doesn't always lead to low self, sense of self-esteem. It can actually lead to a puffed-up, self-exalting arrogance when we actually reach these goals that we've set for ourselves. So this is both you know, an action, pride. You know, I, I take pride and I express my pride. I want people to know how cool I am as I display the stuff I'm able to perform. So it's also an action, but it's, it's an attitude as well. And if things don't work out the way I want, my pride causes me to be despondent, avoid risk, anger, resentment, all of that. Or if things do work out the way I want because of my pride, then I want to express that and I want people to know that. Either way, it's something the Bible speaks against and it's something that motivates us and manifests itself in lots of ways, including this uh, perfectionism. Well, what's the solution to the performance trap? Well, before we go to the solution... Let me just ask a couple more questions. Sorry. So I just want you all to think about how this kind of stuff might show up in your own life. Uh, Somebody who's a perfectionist, how easy is it for people like that to be hospitable, do you think? You say, what's hospitality have to do with perfectionism? Well, the house is never right, right? I mean, I can't have people come over, what if somebody goes in the bathroom and, you know, we're out of toilet paper or, you know, right? I, what if I did something? What if there's dust? What if there's, you know, holy cow, no, no way I can deal with that. My house is too ugly. My shrubs have needed to be changed for years. I know Jesus says be hospitable, but he didn't mean in this dump. Well, actually he did but your perfectionism keeps you from doing it. Because it's got to look good enough, it's got to be good enough. And, and Jesus doesn't say any of that. But because we think that and we've set up that standard, then we can't do something that God commands us to do. Hospitality is something God commands us to do. And I'm just using that as an example because I've heard people say this. You know, my house is, I can't, all of that. No, it may be you can't for circumstantial reasons. You know, got newborns at home, working. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons you can't have people over as much as you might like. That's completely different. But the idea that I can't do this because my place doesn't meet some artificial standard that I have set up keeps you then, perhaps, from obeying God. So I just want you all to think about that. How easy is it for somebody who's a perfectionist to be hospitable? Not very. And if you find yourself in that category, then this is what's lurking behind it. Let me ask you another question. Is it always God's will?
for you to do your very best? No, that's a loaded question because it sounds like the answer is obviously yes. But I've become convinced over the years that the answer is not so obvious. That there are times it would be God's will for you to tone it down for the sake of somebody else. Have you ever thought of that? I mean, can you just envision? I've never seen anybody do this. I, I heard a story of someone doing this. They're actually in a race, competing in a race. And um, they, they slowed down for the benefit of somebody else. Just to not make them look so bad. Seems to me that would be that, that God, is, God smiles at that kind of thing. When people are willing to condescend to where somebody else is. But a perfectionist mentality says, you always do your best, people will just have to deal with the, the consequences of that. I mean, just think about from God's standpoint. Jesus leaves the palace of heaven, the royalty of heaven, to come to the dusty roads of Palestine and to look like one of us. That's, that's Jesus who is perfection, willing to condescend for the benefit of other people. So there are all, I'm telling you that because there are all sorts of manifestations of this that I want you to filter and think about from a, a biblical standpoint. All right, now finding a solution then to the performance trap. One sense of self should not be performance-based. One's ability to perform may impress others, but not God. One should not base his sense of self-worth on well, how well he can do certain things, what others think about him. God's not impressed if you're a great athlete, make lots of money. Straight A's do not impress God. God's relationship with man is not based on man's ability, skills, and, and talents. Thus, one should not think highly of himself just because he's able to perform in a certain way. Now, again, this has all kinds of you know, ramifications. You may be horrified at what I'm going to tell you. My wife is sort of horrified at what I'm going to tell you. But, you know, God's not impressed with things like straight A's. Now, uh, isn't it the truth that our grading system is man-made? God didn't, God didn't make up the four-point grading system. Now, you're in it, you, and so you work within it. And so I'm good with all of that. And I'm good with attempting to get a, a, as best GPA you, you can within reason. But I've taught my daughters this. And I've taught my daughters not to fret too much. Their life is not about their GPA. They need to do well. They need to do reasonably well. But they also have life to live. And they have ministry to serve in. They are not going to be nervous wrecks about their grades. They're going to do what they can do and then take what they get. Now, amazingly to me, these girls get amazingly good grades. I do. <laughs> Thankfully, they take after their mother. You guys have heard me say, you know, when people in their pride, the perfectionist who comes and says, I never got a B when I was in school. And I say, neither did I. <laughs> so... But, you know, these, these things that we have listed here, athletic accomplishments, even academic accomplishments, lots of money, from God's standpoint, 
the guy that leaves with little money might actually be the most successful. Am I right about that? If he has sought to use what he has for God's purposes. No, I'm not counseling, you know, get rid of your, empty your bank accounts, all of that stuff. Jesus is coming tomorrow. You want to make sure you don't have anything in the bank when he shows. <laughs> but our standard is, you know, lots of money, you're successful. And from God's standpoint, it may be quite the opposite. In fact, he does, Jesus told a lot of stories about that, didn't he? Lots of money being actually an indication of failure from an eternal standpoint. So one sense of self-worth should not be performance-based. Last two sentences there. One should not then think highly of himself just because he's able to perform in a certain way. The only standards that really matter are God's standards of righteousness, which are impossible to meet. So one sense of self should be biblically-based. And in the next couple of pages, we give some doctrines that sound dry and dusty, but they actually have application to how we view ourselves. The first one's based on this theological term, propitiation. What is that? Well, it's translated in the NIV as atoning sacrifice, as in 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as a, and the word is propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It means that the wrath of someone who has been unjustly wronged has been satisfied. And in the sacrifice of Jesus, God the Father is propitiated. His wrath is satisfied. That's why in Christ alone we sing the wrath of God was satisfied. We sing that in a lot of our hymns. That's referring to this idea of a propitiation. Now, if you look on page 12, that implies three things then. One, our performance is not good enough. Man is sinful and deserving of wrath. Adam's performance was committing the first sin. And ever since, man has been guilty of sin. So the fact that there needed to be an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation, should suggest to us that our performance in whatever category is never going to impress God. Secondly, God's wrath has been satisfied or turned away by the death of Christ. We are no longer as believers under the wrath of God. Jesus absorbed the full measure of God's wrath against believers. And so one's admiration should be directed toward Christ, not toward others, and especially not toward oneself. And the fact that God loves believers is not due to anything we've done, not because we are worthy, not because we're lovable, but because it's God's nature to love. We are not worthy of God's love. There's nothing inherent in us that causes God to love us. We cannot boast that we've done anything to merit God's grace. So how does that apply to the performance trap? Performance is not, and never was, the basis for one's worth. Now, it is not, and notice the other phrase, and never was. You say, but what about before sin? Never was? Performance never was the basis of our worth. And we've worded that, carefully and mean that it is not now and it never was even before sin even before Adam fell and before sin 
His worth was in the fact that he bears the image of God. His worth was still found in God. Even before sin, now, after sin, we find all sorts of ways that distort that image, as you heard me preach in the first hour. We find all sorts of ways to try to find our worth outside of God. But our worth was always intended to be found in our relation to God. Made in the image of God and now in Christ being remade in the image of God. Middle of that paragraph. Thus one's value before God is based on Christ's death, not our ability to perform. God loves us in spite of the fact that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath and judgment. This totally removes any basis for pride, obviously. And then the next theological concept that you're familiar with because we talked about it two weeks ago in our uh, Gospel for Real Life series, but that is justification. Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a term from the legal world. It describes a guilty person being pronounced righteous by the judge. He's not actually innocent, but the judge declares him to be so. And in salvation, we've actually been declared to be righteous that is given a positive standing before God the judge. It's a position now that is changed, even though in our experience we still struggle with sin. Second paragraph on page 13, the word righteous needs a bit of explanation. Biblically, it means meeting the standard, fulfilling all the obligations. So there could be such a thing as a righteous measure in Scripture, and there is. It says to actually in Scripture to use righteous weights and measures. That means weights and measures that actually conform to the standard of what a pound is or what an ounce is. Or, so you can have a righteous yardstick. A righteous yardstick is 36 inches, no shorter and no longer. And a righteous person fulfills all his obligations, meets all the standards he's expected to meet. Now, who meets all of those? Only Christ. What is the standard? It's God's character. What is that character? Absolutely perfect. So Jesus says, if you care to jot this down, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, well, I'm cooked. (laughs) Yes, you are. And yes, so am I. Outside of the perfection of Christ that is applied to us in justification. And when God the judge applies the absolute righteousness of Christ who met the standard completely to us, then, middle of page 13, things like Romans 8.1 are true of us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So he approves of the performance of Christ. God the Father approves of the performance of Christ. Therefore, I'm not the one who has to perform, and in fact, I don't have the ability to perform up to God's standard. The only approval we need, second from the last paragraph, is from God, and through justification, every believer is approved. Because we are in Christ, we are just as acceptable to God as Jesus is. We are considered to be perfect because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us through our faith. Our standing before God could not be any better than it is. This is not to suggest we no longer sin or that God no longer cares when we sin. We still have to forsake and repent. However, in a judicial sense, God has already dealt with our sin. Nothing we can do can change our state of acceptability with God. All saved people are 
in the words of Ephesians 1.6, accepted in the beloved. And that should solve our addiction to the approval problem. I say it this way. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. So Jesus has performed. Adam, Adam's performance was his sin. Adam is our representative gives us his sin, but Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And that's why the Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Adam represented us and he failed to perform. Jesus represented us and he performed perfectly. And if you find your identity in Jesus, then you won't be wigged out, you won't be nervous all the time, you won't care about what everybody thinks of you because you know what God thinks of you. It will have profound, practical, everyday effects on how you think and how you live. Now, next week, we're going to look at how the approval junkie goes about his or her life and what the Bible says is the solution to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as each Lord's Day for the privilege of being able to be here to be together, to be able to encourage and be encouraged, to look into your word and to learn, to see your character extolled there, and to glean from your word by the aid of your spirit the principles and precepts that we need to apply to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your word is fully sufficient to equip us for every good work. And so the isms that we face, the propositions we face, the claims to truth that we hear and read, those are all to be measured against the standard of the truth of your word. Thank you for giving us that word that is unmovable and unchanging and absolutely contains all that we need for life and godliness. We pray that what we have heard in both hours today, you might help us to apply in our lives this afternoon and this coming week. And we ask you, Lord, to grant us safety so that we can worship you again together next Lord's Day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.